Inbounds pass comes into Jordan. Here's Michael at the foul line. A shot on Elo. Good! The Bulls win! Playoffs? Don't talk about playoffs. You kidding me? I'm supposed to be the franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. Hello? You play to win the game. They're down to the 20. All the band is out on the field. He's going to go into the end zone. I don't believe what I just saw. One of the all-time shockers. Hi, everybody. I'm Mitch Goldich, and welcome to episode one of what I have very creatively named the Mitch Goldich Podcast, where I will talk to sports media people about sports media things. My guest today is a freelance writer. He contributes regularly to Rolling Stone and Sports on Earth. You may have seen his work before that at outlets like Fox Sports, Deadspin, and BuzzFeed. He's also been featured in the Best Sports Writing of the Year anthology for a story about, believe it or not, The Simpsons. And his name is Eric Malinowski. Hello, Eric Malinowski. Thanks for the intro, Mitch. Good to be here. Thanks. So you live in the Bay Area. Are you in San Francisco? I live uh, just south of San Francisco in a town called uh, San Mateo, probably about 20 minutes south of the city, uh, better known as the hometown uh, of uh, Barry Bonds and Tom Brady. So uh, some famous, <laughs> some famous residents from the area. It's always been, always been interesting over the past decade when you talk about natives of San Mateo. Yeah, I've heard of them. So do you ever run into Barry at the Starbucks and uh, and say hi? Does he know you? <laughs> Yeah, no, we're not close personal friends. Although Greg Jeffries is also from the area, and uh, being a younger, uh, being a Mets fan of a certain age, uh, I think there's probably more of a chance of running into him at Starbucks down the street. But no celebrity sightings as of yet. Holding out hope, though. Okay. And uh, how long have you been out there? Let's see. I've been out here since uh, late uh, 2002. That was. Uh, I came out here probably about six months after I graduated from Boston University. So, so been out there a while, but I would guess the last year has been one of the more exciting ones because uh, you actually got to cover <laughs> the Giants on their run uh, all the way to winning a World Series. And then right after it, you also covered the Warriors on their run to win an NBA title. So of those two, which was more fun for you? Uh, probably covering the World Series because, uh, for a number of reasons, just being, uh, probably sort of a baseball fan, first and foremost, at least from my earliest years, uh, that was just kind of a thrill, just something to really just cross off the, the career, uh, bucket list. Um, but also it was just really, uh, unexpected because, uh, you know, last year, so hard to think all the way back to last season. But uh, especially being in the Bay Area, the A's were really the team that everybody was talking about all season. Uh, there was a couple of points during the year where they had the best record in baseball. They they were playing uh, exceptionally well, and you thought, well, gosh, maybe this is the year that they all put it together. And then, and then the uh, you know August and September happened. Everything kind of kind of went downhill. Uh, but for the A's, but not for the Giants. And the Giants, they they snuck in and. You know, I was still working for Fox Sports at the time, and I figured, um, you know, what a waste it would be to just sort of, you know, have all these playoff games happening here and to not not be able to cover it. So I just kind of, you know, they've got Ken and uh, and, and John Rossi, but I just kind of <laughs> wedged myself in there a little bit. And I said, look, you know, I'm here. You know, as long as they're going to have playoff games here, you know, give me a credential and let me let me cover them. And, uh, and they just kept winning. You know, they, uh, they the national series was was surprising and. And then the series against the Cardinals was just so memorable. And 
and, you know, being able to, you know, sit up in the overflow seating up the high in the left field upper deck for, uh, for games three, four, and five of the World Series was, I mean, it was probably the highlight of my career to this point. Um, just being able to, being in that environment, especially game five and seeing Madison Bumgarner throw that amazing shutout against the Royals. Um, you know, covering the Warriors uh, championship was fun as well, but, you know, the Warriors were just so good the entire season. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't ultimately sort of surprising that everybody, or that they, they ended up winning the title. Um, although if they had managed to win it at home, I would probably have a different answer to that uh, because that would have been quite an experience. But all in all, yeah, I mean, it's been a really good uh, 12 months here for various sports fans. There's not a, not a lot of people walking down the street complaining about things. So uh, I'm curious. So the Giants won. You were working at Fox Sports and pitched them to let you do that. How did the covering the Warriors come about? You because you were freelancing at the time. You just reached out to. Right. You said, "Hey, I want to cover the Warriors. Let's find a place that'll let yeah. me do that." And and that ended up being Sports on Earth. You know, yeah. I mean, it kind of. Uh, I mean, it was actually kind of a very similar thought process, although just like coming from a slightly different place. Again, it was like. Well, the Warriors were doing so well. Obviously, you know, they had far clinched, you know, the, the number one seed in the Western Conference. And, you know, I've been maybe freelancing for about two or three months. It was about two or three months after I left Fox. And, uh, and again, I just kind of thought to myself, gosh, it would be such a waste to, uh, you know, be sitting at home on my couch, albeit enjoying watching the games. It would be more fun to actually be inside Oracle Arena actually covering these for somebody. So I just kind of thought to myself, you know, who, uh, who doesn't have a Bay Area-based uh, writer who's, who's who's plugged in or covering these things? And one of the first uh, sites that came to mind was Sports on Earth. So, you know, I I, I knew uh, I'd been friends with Will Leach for a few years, so I just sent him an email and I said, "Who do I talk to?" And so he put me in touch with with the main person over at Sports on Earth, and we had a nice chat. And yeah, and basically we came to you know sort of the same agreement you know I had with the Giants and Foxes, just you know however far they go. I'll just keep covering the home games and just keep getting me a credential and I'll, I'll file after every game. And, and again, it was just one of those things where it was just, it was very, it was almost serendipitous. It just, uh, they kept winning and I kept going to the games and, and, uh, and the rest is history. So what was it like for you? I'm guessing, obviously you knew a lot about both teams just living there and, and being immersed in the mm-hmm. local coverage, but you sure. weren't a beat writer. You weren't officially covering either team. And then all of a sudden you're just dropped right. in and of course, national reporters come in whenever there's a playoff run or a you know a big championship series. But for you to just all of a sudden be there and interviewing players and at press conferences uh, where you're you know you, you're familiar with the teams where you're not a beat writer. So what was that like making that transition and being among people who've been around them all year and still trying to come up with great stories? Was it tough to to be able to hop in there and and do that and do a good job uh, writing stories like that? Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, being a local guy, I think you just sort of, you're naturally, as long as you're just sort of paying attention, you're sort of naturally in tune to sort of what's going on. Um, at the same time, uh, it definitely did uh, take a little while to get my sea legs. I mean, I do sort of consider myself a generalist at heart, which, uh, you know, has uh, is kind of a blessing and a curse at the same time because, uh, you know, editors will say, well, they think you're, you're 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 valuable. You you're like a Swiss Army knife. You can do lots of things. But the problem is, is that you know you're not like immediately the first person that somebody will think of because well you think of someone who covers the NBA Finals or basketball playoffs, you're gonna think you're gonna want a basketball person. So you're you know, when I got there, I basically found myself surrounded by basketball people. Um, so you know, and like you said, you know, a lot of the national outlets will send 
you know, like a big, uh, big person in for like a one-off, you know, like, uh, you know, NBC sports will send in like a Joe Posnanski or something like that to come cover, you know, one game or something like that. But other than that, I mean, you're basically surrounded by people, very smart, very talented people that, that do this all season long. You know, we have a, we have a good crop of basketball writers here in the Bay Area. We've got, you know, guys like Ethan Strauss from ESPN. We've got Eric Freeman from Yahoo Sports. Uh, we've got a lot of the beat guys here, uh, you know, Marcus Thompson and, and uh, you know, Tim Kawakami from the Mercury News. We've got some good columnists. So there's a lot of really smart uh, basketball-minded people here. And, and you just try to immerse yourself. You're just you're trying to read everybody the next day. Uh, you know, you just get your stuff in on time. But... You know, as the as the playoffs go on, you do feel more comfortable about these things, and I guess that was, I think that was what I was most uh, thankful for. They went so far because you know by the time the NBA Finals rolled around, there were just so many people there. But also, I kind of feel like I especially know what I'm doing at that point. You know, you're just you're so familiar with the surroundings, you you kind of know where the player's mindset is at that time. You know, there's not a whole lot that's necessarily going to surprise you. And you can also help out the national people that are coming in because there's a lot of people that come in from the NBA Finals that, you know, haven't covered or haven't been to Oracle Arena, you know, for one game the entire season. So all of a sudden, if you've been around, you've been there for those three previous playoff rounds, you know, you're almost like a veteran at that point. So it's uh, it's funny how, you know, the, the playoffs last for two months. You know, if you if you go all the way to the Game 7 of a, of a Finals, you're basically talking about two months. Um, and so much can happen during that point, and, and even not just for the players, but I think for the media as well. So I'm thinking specifically about uh, you wrote a really good story about the day Curry won the MVP and then gave his speech and talked about all his teammates. Mm-hmm. And from reading that, I wouldn't have known. You know, it seemed like you'd been with the team all year. Um, and <laughs> I guess how much did you learn from that two months compared to just the years before that you'd followed and paid attention? Like, how much does being around the team really help because a lot of people are able to just follow a team and they write stories off of games from the couch mm-hmm. and tons of people do that. How much really extra did you gain from being there and interacting with them and, and being on site at the finals and throughout the whole playoffs? You know, I, I think, uh, I, I think it's different for every writer. For me personally, it was a huge benefit and, and a huge, uh, advantage to be able to sort of, you know, take the things that I'm seeing and take the things that I'm experiencing firsthand. You know, I, I basically become a primary source at that point. So I'd be able to, you know, see uh, things that, that people, other people are not privy to, and I get to relay that. And to me, sort of coming from, from more of a, a, a place of inexperience, at least in terms of that subject matter, that was very helpful. Now, there's a lot of people that can, you know, a lot of very excellent writers out there that can sort of just watch a game and sort of, you know, be able to sort of put it into a very uh, immediate and depressing context and be able to re- relay that for people. And I, and I do that on occasion. There were some games during the playoffs where, you know, I was writing uh, game recaps on, on road pieces. So I essentially I was doing the same thing. I was just sort of watching it on TV from afar. Um, but I, I can feel the difference, you know, when, when you're at the arena for all the home games and then you have to sort of switch gears into something that's different or unfamiliar. I feel like it takes a little bit away from what your writing is. So, I mean, if that's something that you're familiar with, it could be <laughs> a little bit of a shock to the system. But, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's writers that really excel at being able to, uh, to not have to be in the environment and to be able to convey a sense of context and, and purpose. And frankly, I'm, I'm pretty jealous of those people because I think that's, that's really an acquired skill. And, uh, I think that's something that you, you see with more time and more experience. 
And did you get caught up at all as a fan of either of those teams or just sports in general? I mean, were you, because it's kind of strange, you're sort of, I imagine you're rooting for the teams to win because then you get to keep covering them and keep going to awesome games. But were you happy to see them win? Were you really rooting for them or were you able to take yourself out of it? Do you you think that matters? Should you have to take yourself out of it? Yeah, I mean, I uh, a few thoughts on that. I mean, I first of all, I'm a, a recovering, long recovering Knicks fan from way back. So, uh, you know, it wasn't uh, it wasn't like I was coming from a place of like you know a profound sense of like childhood you know fandom or anything like that. So that that part there wasn't difficult. I mean, obviously, you know, living here for so long, you know, you're I'm, I'm surrounded. I have friends now; they're lifelong Warriors fans. So I can sort of, if anything, I can sort of appreciate sort of where they're coming from. And I can understand uh, what it means to them when you say that, well, they haven't won a decade, uh, a championship in four decades. Like, I understand what that means, you know, as opposed to other people that might not. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting paid per piece. So, you know, it's sort of, it, it behooves me to keep uh, essentially, you know, rooting for them because, you know, I can, I get a little bit closer to paying my rent, you know, the farther that the, uh, that the Warriors go. So, so you're like the league you know, you, rooting you are, for the long series, for the, the, the exactly, conspiracy series, right. the reps you know, uh, try and send it to seven games. That's good for the bank account. <laughs> yeah. And there were, you know, there were some long, you know, there were some, there was a long series there and, you know, they actually, you know, they played a lot, almost the max of home games that they could in a lot of cases. And, and, uh, I was really rooting for the finals to go seven games, but, you know, at that point you're just kind of rooting for the fact that, I get to go to an NBA Finals Game 7 and, like, you know, I honestly, you know, when it, it's not a guarantee that I'm ever going to be able to, uh, I'm ever going to be in another position where I can, you know, I'll be at a Game 7 in an NBA Finals. So, if anything, that was, I was really just sort of rooting for that, just sort of, sort of the spectacle of it at that point. So, um, but, you know, I mean, there's, you know, the, 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 the Oracle Arena is one of the most, uh, you know, the loudest, the most fervent uh, fan bases in the NBA and, you know, it's, uh, you know, you, you just have, you, you experience it. It's not, uh, you know, as long as, it's not something to necessarily get caught up in, but, uh, but it's, it's infectious. I mean, you sit there, you know, I would see, uh, beat guys come from around the country. I would, you know, you more and more would come, you know, with every round of the playoffs as they advance. And you would see the faces on people and you say, wow. I mean, this, this is a special place. This is, this is a place where the fans really love their team and it's loud and it's intimidating. So, you got if, there, if there's anything to get caught up in, it's more of a sense of that, and uh, and you know. But there's a lot, a lot of guys are professional, so you know it's not. I don't think it's anything that's going to color the coverage. But at the same time, you know, I don't. Uh, you know, we have this notion of like fans as sports writers or something like that, and I feel like that's that's also becoming sort of a thing that we don't really care about as much these days. I mean, you see, you know, there. there I think you see more sports writers these days that are. Um, you know, sort of more open about sort of their past or sort of their their history with sports fandom. You know, before it was like, well, you got to be completely objective and, you know, you just have to completely shut all that off. But I think you're starting to see people sort of thaw out of that a little bit. So that's not necessarily something that concerns me as much as it used to. Mm-hmm. So as a Mets fan, you can be happy for your Warriors fan friends and you can be uh, bitter toward your Giants <laughs> fan friends because they've had enough and you can feel free to root for the Royals even while you're covering the Giants. <laughs> I mean, kind of, yeah. I mean, but it's all just become funny to me at this point. Like, to me, like, the longer that I write or, you know, you know, I've been sort of writing, you know, full-time sports for about five years now, give or take, and it's like, 
you know, but I, you know, but this is what I always wanted to do. So it's like, this is, I've sort of been, you know, ready for this, this kind of career. And it's like, after a while, things just go uh, further on. It's just like the whole idea of like, just sort of becoming so emotionally invested in the idea of a sports team just becomes, it becomes exhausting after a while, you know? I mean, it's like, you know, the way I feel, the way I might feel about a given team or a trade or a move or even a single game has no bearing whatsoever on, like, real life or anything that's actually happening. Um, so I feel like after a while I could just become a little bit more sort of disconnected from the idea of, you know, emotionally connecting myself to these these teams. But And like you said, you know, sort of being a Mets fan from way back, that's probably pretty healthy for me. <laughs> In the end, that's probably a better way to go through life. So uh, last question just about these uh, these runs, because I'm also curious, because you wrote a few stories for Rolling Stone about the Warriors. And I was mm-hmm. just curious how – uh, how you sort of decide what goes where, um, like, because you're you're writing and covering the team for one outlet. Like, did you was Sports on Earth okay with you then pitching stories to Rolling Stone? How did you decide which were separate one-offs and and which went for one outlet and sort of how that kind of worked uh, when that's happening at the same time? It's not really a big deal. I mean, I, I it's something that I was very conscious of. It's something that I just wanted to keep very separate. You know, my my whole idea is that you know the only reason I'm there sort of you know, uh, you know, inside Oracle Arena, you know, Sports on Earth is credentialing me. So I was, I tried to be very respectful of that. So anything that I was going to write pertaining to the Warriors or the NBA playoffs uh, in general, uh, I wanted to sort of take from like a more sort of 30,000-foot view. So I didn't want any of the pieces that I was writing for Rolling Stone or anything like that to make seem like I was actually sitting in the arena. And I think if you go back and read those, like, it doesn't actually seem like that. It just... I, I, they try to read sort of more as like an opinion piece, or sort of like the, you know, the state of where the playoffs are at that given time. And all the pieces that I was doing for Sports on Earth, more or less, were, you know, I'm, my my butt is in the chair and I'm actually there, and I'm conveying that sense of being there to the reader. So uh, it, it's something that I was conscious of, and I didn't want to sort of, you know, cross the beams as it were. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason I bring that up, and this is sort of a, a long transition, but you also wrote another story. Uh, that was published in January about the Dirty Dozen, this team of Olympic <laughs> hopeful rowers that sort of came out of nowhere. And I think I saw you tweeting that you worked on that story for like years at a time. How long were you working on that or from when the idea came until it was actually published? I think uh, the, the idea first came to me, I believe it was uh, late uh, 2010, uh, 2011. It was like October of 2011. So all in all, probably just a little over three years from when I first got the idea to actual publication. Okay, so part of the reason I ask, I'm, I'm just curious, like, while you're you're working on that, you had a few different jobs, so is that something you had sure. pitched to a few different, like, bosses and, and full-time places you're working, and then it was just, it wasn't finished, or had, were you just kind of, like, keeping that to yourself, and you thought, well, when it's done, it's done, and then I'll I'll figure it out? I'm just curious, like, how that... Uh, what that was like while you've got this long, massive project and you've been published at a, a ton of different places. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it got really complicated. You know, I sort of, when, when I first got the idea, I sort of was not in a position to actually, like, do that story yet. Like, I knew that there was something good here. And I knew that no one else had written about it, but the problem was, was you know, I wasn't really, like, working anywhere at that time. I was actually still sort of freelancing at that time. Uh, you know, this was even before I had written the uh, sentence piece for Deadspin, so this was like pre almost anything that I had written that mattered. Um, 
But at the same time, you know, this was um, this was a story that literally nobody had written about, which was a blessing and a curse because I got to be the one who write it, you know, hopefully because I could report the story out. But there was, you know, there were no crumbs. There was almost nothing online, you know. Uh, there was none of these guys' names from the story, none of the characters in the story. Uh, none of their names were actually online anywhere. Like, you couldn't Google it and sort of come up with a list of these people. So I was literally, like, all of the reporting that I did was all... You know, it was all original reporting. You know, it, was, it, it was tracking down people through public records. It was, you know, buying old rowing magazines on eBay and that sort of thing. And uh, and that was really how the story came together. And originally it was supposed to be for, a, for like a long-form uh, magazine uh, app called The Atavist. And, uh, and I was originally going to write it for them, and they kind of passed on it after a while. And uh, and then I just had to think about who else I was going to take it to, and I pitched around to a few other places and... And they passed, and uh, eventually I just realized, well, I mean, it's in good enough shape. I'm working at Fox. Fox is uh, sort of committed to doing these sort of longer pieces, and I'd done a few longer pieces for Fox at that point. I'd done, you know, this profile of Tom Amansky. I'd done a profile of former Commissioner Faye Vincent. And uh, and I was just kind of, you know, out of other outlets at that point. So I realized, well, let's, let's just get it in the shape, and, and let's just publish it or Fox here, and let's just get it out there so people can finally read it. And how many words did it end up being in its final published form? Uh, it actually ended up being about uh, about 12,000 words, give or take, um, which I think uh, <laughs> remains, which I think was and re- will probably remain the longest uh, story that FoxSports.com has ever published. And you personally, that's the longest you've gone, I'm guessing? That is. Uh, before that, the longest I'd done was the Faye Vincent profile, which I think clocked in at about 9,000 words. And... Uh, and yeah, this this uh, this Dirty Dozen story, which you know, sort of the elevator pitch here is that there was a group of it was, back in 1983, there was a group of uh, uh, rugby players from the Bay Area that basically gave up their lives for a year and a half to train to become elite rowers for the 1984 Olympics in LA. And it's sort of the story of how they uh, how they did that, how they were taken. You know, they were financed by this very eccentric sort of real estate magnate here in the Bay Area, and uh, and it's a story of you know how far they got, how they traveled the world, how they became you know, basically stars of the rowing world and how close they ended up being uh, to accomplishing their Olympic dream. Um, so, you know, it was, uh, <laughs> it was a labor of love for a long time, but uh, I was just, frankly, I was just happy to get it published and I was happy that the reaction was so positive. And maybe you said this, how did you actually come across the story in the first place? So I, uh, I, I was working on a feature story for Wired Magazine where I'd worked for eight years as a, as a fact checker. And but I freaked out. So I quit. Uh, I was freelancing, and uh, and this story never actually ended up running. Uh, but uh, but I was talking to somebody, who, a subject for the story, and during one of our conversations during the reporting, he just went off on this tangent uh, about how when he was working at Cal Berkeley, he was like a physical therapist kind of kind of guru. And when he was working at Cal Berkeley in the early 1980s, he just mentioned how uh, it was a group of. Uh, of rugby players turned rowers that I used to work with, and they were this crazy group of guys, and they were they were going to try to make the Olympics and blah blah blah. And all I'm thinking to myself is, that's the story that I wanted to be reporting here, not not the not the story that I've come here to talk to this guy about. And, uh, and it was one of those cases where I just I went home that day from my reporting trip, and and I googled you know Dirty Dozen Rowing Club Bay Area or whatever. And I, I think I got like two search results, and one of them was just an AP story from 1983. So I realized that uh, 
I, I, and even at that point, I didn't know, like, was this guy just making everything up at that point? I mean, was, <laughs> yeah. was he embellishing? I mean, like, what is, what is the fact and what is the fiction here? And he was mostly correct in the end, but, uh, but it, it, he turned out to be correct enough to actually, he, 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 that was the first crumb. And then, uh, one crumb, uh, turned into a few more at that point. So. So which do you prefer working on? Do you, prefer putting together these kinds of long form pieces that are going to take you longer to do compared to, I mean, it's a totally different experience compared to like being in the arena for a basketball game, which uh, sure. I guess, do they do different things for you or, you know, which, which do you enjoy? How are they different? Sort of the thrill of writing and publishing. Yeah. I mean, the basketball stuff is, is a good example. It's a good question. I, I like doing that because it, it gets, you know, now that I'm basically a full-time freelancer working from home, like my, my my human interaction has been sort of cut off or has, been, has decreased dramatically over the last five months, give or take. Uh, so that was great because it just it forced me to sort of be out and about and sort of remember sort of, you know, what that experience was like, uh, you know, every, you know, day or two, or two days or three days. Um, but frankly, I do, uh, I, I, I just really love doing the longer pieces. And, you know, some of them, you know, end up taking, uh, you know, some of them I can bang out in three or four days. You know, I did a piece for BuzzFeed on the, the, the history behind uh, One Shining Moment, the uh, the college basketball anthem. And uh, I think I did that story from, you know, my first interview to, uh, to publication. It took four days total. And I don't recommend that for anybody. That was just uh, a case of me sort of doing my usual thing where I come up with an idea way too late and then uh, try to hurry up and get it through the process. But, late uh, as in like the tournament you know, was then, the next <laughs> the tournament started the next day we got to go is that yeah i think it was a case where my my buzzfeed editor just uh at the time just g chatted me i think it might have been like literally like six days before the final four started i think he just g chatted me something like we should do a story on one shining moment and i sort of interpreted that to mean i'm going to do the definitive story on how one shining moment was created and I was just like, okay, great. So I got, I found the guy who wrote the song, called him up, talked to him. I, if you read the story, you learn that uh, Armin Katayan of CBS Sports, who was an SI investigative reporter back then, uh, plays a very pivotal role. You know, he was childhood friends with the guy who wrote the song, and you know, I tracked down Armin was somewhere on assignment, and I, you know, interviewed him at like 6 a.m. on a Saturday morning, and you know, managed to you know file by Sunday morning, and we got it published the next day, and. And it just all came together. Like you said, that is not a healthy recipe for, for banging out a long-form feature. But, you know, I think it ended up being recognized, selected as a notable selection in last year's Best American Sports Writing. So apparently I did something right, you know. <laughs> I, I, but I, I try to avoid that at all costs. I try to give myself at least, you know, three or four weeks on, on some, some projects. You know, I'm working on something right now. Uh, I've got features, you know, for Rollingstone.com. You know, scheduled through October, so I got three different features that I'm working on right now, and I got to file one of them in about three and a half weeks, or three weeks. So, you know, I'm deep into the reporting on that, and, and then on to the next one. So, you know, ideally, I like to give myself, you know, uh, you know, about a month, maybe six weeks. You know, I did the Simpsons piece for Deadspin. I did that in about six weeks. You know, between the time that I, you know, emailed the idea to Tommy Craggs until the time it was published. So that seems to be sort of the sweet spot. And then sort of the goal as a freelancer, and this is actually something I'm sort of still, you know, working on because I haven't sort of, you know, been full-time freelancing in at least a couple of years, uh, is the idea to just sort of keep that wheel moving. And, you know, you've got, you know, maybe it takes you six weeks to work on a piece, but you've got to be working on maybe three or four pieces, you know, simultaneously at any given time. So, you know, as one piece goes out, you better have at least two or three or four more in the hopper because, 
you know, you got to keep publishing. You got to have those those checks keep coming in, and and plus it's fun. You know, this is this isn't work. You know, we get to we get to write about sports for a living. We get to write uh, you know cool stories about people that uh, that, that readers don't yet know about, or stories that they don't yet know, and we we get to be the people that sort of tell those uh, stories. So, you know, this is. <laughs> This beats a lot of other things that I could be doing. So it's not, uh, it gets kind of manic and then the pressure, uh, you know, kind of goes up a little bit sometimes. But, you know, this this ain't work. This is more fun than anything. Yeah, which is nice. On those days you get stressed to just take a step back and say, well, this is, if this is what I'm stressed about, this is, uh, this is a good life then. Yeah. Um, so I, I I'm a big proponent add. of uh, going around the block for walks. That that helps out a lot. Okay. <laughs> um, easier than turning on the Mets game, I guess, if you're trying to relieve stress. Yeah, yeah, much better for the blood pressure. Yeah, sorry yeah. to get another jab in there. Um, as a, fair a enough, Philly, it's as fair. a Phillies yeah. fan myself, for those who don't know, although we don't have much no, you, to you, talk this year. You speak accurate and true. That's fine. <laughs> Uh, so I did want to ask you about the Simpson story, and I know you said that was sort of your first – I forget your phrasing exactly. I think you said your first thing that mattered was maybe what you said. Yeah, but, um, no, that, that's pretty much it, yeah. <laughs> okay. So this was – and this was a history of the famous episode where the, the Springfield Nine and the Simpson softball team with uh, MLB stars. Where does that rank on your uh, list of – favorite stories that you've done, uh, you know, or, or how important was it to your career? You know, how much, how much fun was that one for you to, to, to work on at the time? And then also to still look back on and say, yeah, I have that story. And it was, it was fun. It was awesome. It's, it, it's number one on all of those things. It's, it's mm-hmm. number one, it's far and away the, my favorite piece that I've ever done. Uh, but even, you know, the gap between one and two is even wider on, in terms of, you know, how, how important it was to my career. I mean, I, you know, I, I tried for so long, you know, I was a sports writer in college. I interned at the Boston Globe sports department. I always wanted to write sports coming out of college, but you know, it was all, it was all pre social media at that point, you know, 2002, I graduated. So, you know, this was pre Friendster, you know, so nobody, nobody was like connected with anybody. I knew I was going to come out to the Bay area because my, my, my girlfriend and my wife, you know, she was from there. So I knew I was going to come here eventually, but nobody knew anybody. So, you know, I came out here and I ended up just getting a fact check internship at Wired Magazine. And I basically turned that into a staff position. I was a fact checker uh, for, you know, seven years, seven and a half years. And I wrote a few sports related uh, pieces for the magazine over the years. I always kind of felt like I was the token sports guy in the office. I kind of felt like it was my, my duty to, uh, to to pitch sports stuff where I could. And, and I did that a few times, but, uh, but I was mostly just fact checking at that point. And you know, in hindsight, it was a really good experience because you learn, you know, you, you know, you know, Wired won National Magazine Awards over those years. I mean, you're working with some of the best editors and some of the best writers in journalism. So, so you know, you learn a lot about sort of the craft of, of, you know, making good magazine stories. And you learn, like, you know, what it takes to be a good writer. And, and at the same time, you learn what not to do because you see a lot of really good writers of, of really good reputation make some really dumb mistakes. Uh, and it happens, you know, so you get to be able to, to learn from those, you know, sort of behind the scenes. But, you know, so I did that for years and I, I did, but my, my career as a sports writer just had no openings at that point. So eventually I became, uh, eventually Wired decided to start a sports blog. And, uh, and so I, I moved to Wired.com from the magazine. I edited their sports site for a year and then I went freelance and I was freelancing for about six months. But, you know, I was just kind of, I was writing for trade publications. I was doing, you know, like tech product reviews. Like I just wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't really breaking in the way I'd hoped. And then uh, through through a common acquaintance, I met AJ Delario, who was 
editing Deadspin at the time, and we had some good discussions. Um, but through, through meeting AJ, I also met Tommy Craggs. So when Tommy took over as the editor of Deadspin, you know, at the tail end of 2011, he kind of got in touch with me and said, you know, we got some freelance budget. You got any ideas? Uh, just let me know. Just drop me a line. And so it was just a case. It was like early January 2012. And it was one of those cases where I literally just sprang out of bed at like midnight because I had remembered something that I you know, was looking up on the Internet. And I just very randomly uh, discovered that, you know, I happened to notice that the 20th anniversary of Homer at the Bat happened to be coming up. Um, and I thought, gosh, this would be like, this would be the perfect Deadspin story. So I, I think I spent like an hour and a half or two hours just banging out this pitch in the middle of the night, sent it to Tommy, and I woke up the next morning, and he had just replied to me with two words in all caps, do it. So I'm like, great, <laughs> I've got an assignment. But, you know, it's early January, and... Now I've got uh, six weeks. I don't know, you know, February 20th is the, is the anniversary at that point. I don't know. I, I want to get it to him in four or five weeks and give him at least a week to edit it. But I don't know if it's going to be an oral history. You know, there's nine baseball players from that episode. There's Simpsons people to talk to. I don't know, like, what, how am I going to get in touch with all these people? So I basically just did what I could. I actually ended up contacting all the, all the baseball players uh, through, you know, their organizations that they run or representatives that might know them. I only actually ended up hearing back from two of them was Ozzy Smith, uh, who I found through his like real estate agent, and uh, Steve Sachs, who happened to be a, a motivational speaker in the Sacramento area. Um, so I managed to talk to both of them and just did a lot of research. You know, I listened to like a DVD commentary and, and dug up like old, you know, articles from LexisNexis, and I discovered that you know that was the first time they had ever beat the Cosby Show in the ratings. So I was just able to sort of take all this information from all these different sources and sort of weave it all together and, and Craig's uh, sort of edited it into like this, this very nice little combination of like humor and pop culture and information. And I think it just hit a lot of sweet spots. It, you know, it was sports, it was Simpsons, um, you know, it was Deadspin. So it was, a, it was, it was a certain kind of built in audience that was going to dig all those things. And, uh, and just the response, it was just overwhelming. I mean, I had, and I, I thought, I hoped that it might do well, but people were just so incredibly kind about it. So, you know, and, and it's one of those things that I can sort of, you know, talk about it every year, you know, when the anniversary comes around, I can do that. But I mean, that, that was the catapult for everything, really. I mean, it was maybe two weeks after that, that I started, uh, you know, doing some night shifts for Deadspin. And I did that for a year and that kind of led to the BuzzFeed job, which led to the Fox Sports job, which has led to here. So, you know, that was sort of the catalyst for everything that was to come. So I will forever be grateful for, for that story and for, and for what it did for my career. That's awesome. And it's amazing to think. I'm sure you – I can tell from your Twitter feed you must have spent your whole adolescence just watching Simpsons – watching The Simpsons every <laughs> night and all the reruns. And then look how much it ended up coming in handy, which is crazy to think. Yeah. No, very blessed to be of a certain age where, you know, I, I very – I very readily remember, like, you know, people talk about sort of the golden years, you know, that, you know, seasons, you know, two through eight or something like that. And, you know, I remember, you know, I remember watching all those as they aired originally. So, you know, it's just to be able to go back and sort of pick something from my own childhood and to sort of, you know, bring it to the current and sort of give it, you know, a new context and a new presentation. And I got to be honest, I was scared to death uh, that somebody else was going to think of that story because to me it almost in a way, it just almost seemed so obvious. Like, it was this big milestone. It was this thing that so many people that I knew loved. And I was just, I was terrified. We didn't publish it until, like, you know, 
3 or 4 p.m. Eastern on that day of the anniversary. Huh. You know, we were editing it right up until the last and minute. sitting there watching off. the clock all day. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I'm just I'm watching my Twitter feed at that point, and I'm just terrified. Like, I'm doing Twitter searches for keywords, and I'm like, I just know someone's going to do this to me. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be a Wall Street Journal story or something like that. I don't know, like, what it is. Someone's going to beat me to this. Um, I was I was never so happy to be wrong. So it also it was selected for the best American sports writing, and I know that you know you don't write trying to win awards or anything. Most people <laughs> don't. I imagine you don't, but I'm sure that was pretty amazing. I mean, when you got that it, news, yeah. did you had you submitted it or was this totally out of the blue? Like, what was that like when you found out that that yeah. had happened? I mean, first of all, it was just it was still remains to this day sort of the most freakiest, randomest occurrence that sort of ever happened in my career because, you know, they have a master sort of uh, uh, listing, you know, they have a master list of all the, all the writers that have ever been selected in all the editions, and I, there's just an amazing amount of excellent writers who have never gotten it before. I mean, it's just such a crapshoot. Um, and that was the first time that I had ever submitted. I mean, you know, you, you can read the rules, you know, they're very, you know, Glenn Stout, who's the editor of the series, you know, it makes it very clear that, you know, nominating yourself is basically like, you know, the, the, the best way to ensure that, you know, you get, uh, you know, you get considered in the end. So um, I had no, uh, no qualms. I, there was no pride to be swallowed in terms of, you know, nominating myself for anything. And also I just, I basically just had zero uh, expectations because it was, it was the first thing that I had ever written. Uh, it was just, it was the first time I'd ever nominated myself. It was the first thing I'd ever thought that might warrant any, any iota of consideration for, for such a, for such an honor. And, uh, and, you know, you, you get that email, you know, he, you know, emails crags to then forwards the email onto me with, you know, about 30 exclamation points appended to the beginning. And, you know, you read that email where it's like, you know, you've been selected for, for the anthology and you, I think I just started screaming. <laughs> it was like 9am and I, I think my wife thought I was being murdered or something like that. She ran into the room and, and I told her and, and, and it's tough because the hardest thing is after you find out, you gotta you gotta shut your mouth for five months or until they, you know, they publicly announce the roster in like August or September or whatever the, on, on a given year. And you can, you know, you can tell people you just can't like uh, you can't like publicize it, like you can't tweet it out, you can't Facebook it. Mm-hmm. So you, you you sort of have to keep your your yap shut about it. But uh, and that was kind of hard, but also kind of worth it. <laughs> so. Um, I, you know, look, I don't know if it'll ever happen again. I'm prepared for it to never happen again. And, and if so, that that's fine. Um, you know, all I can do at this point is, you know, just kind of keep giving myself chances to nominate. You know, if I can go through a year and I can look back, you know, as, as, as I've been happy to, you know, you know, the last couple of years, if I can look back on a given calendar year and say, I've got a couple of things here that I, I would not be embarrassed to sort of print out and send in and just cross your fingers on. I mean, I think that's the goal for any of us at this point, you know, just to be able to put out work that you're proud of and, and that you'd want other people to read sort of in another fashion. So speaking of work that you're probably proud of, uh, another thing you did for Deadspin was the Umpire series, and you wrote individual profiles for how many Major League Baseball umpires? I, it was somewhere in like the high 60s. I think all all told, because we did sort of a compilation at the end, but all told, it ended up being a 72 part series. Okay, 72 part series. And can you break it down for us? You had a ton of information on each guy. So what was yeah. in there? But also just you know, why did you do this? Is maybe the first question a lot of people <laughs> would would ask. 
Um, yeah. And how long did this whole process take? Well, so yeah, that was the summer of 2012, and so I was I was freelancing for Denspin at that point. I was doing my sort of three night shifts a week, and uh, I reached the point where you know Tommy and I would just sort of kick around ideas, and and one of the ideas I had was to sort of do something on like uh, I don't know I think I phrased it as something like the private lives of major league umpires, you know, like I, I was doing research for something and I came across some bios, uh, the official MLB bios of umpires, and I found that some of them had some like really funny or interesting sort of, you know, they have like hobbies or like, you may not have known this about this umpire. It was like, he's a trail, like he's a mountain trail guide in the off season, or he's a major insurance executive in Cincinnati or something like that. So my original idea was just to sort of do like, um, like a, like a, a short little feature, you know, like just sort of like a compilation or a montage or something. Uh, of just sort of like the funniest little facts about umpires you may not have known. And Tommy's idea was to, sort of do like, you know, umpires sort of by themselves, sort of singularly. And then I sort of interpreted that to mean like, we should just profile every umpire <laughs> because they all probably have like little quirks. And I, you know, I was sort of inspired by, you know, the Colbert report, you know, has this like, you know, better know it district, you know, where they go through all the congressmen, congresswomen. And I just realized, well, we'll just call it better known umpire and we'll just go down the line and we'll do every umpire and we'll maybe, you know, we'll do them, we'll do one umpire every weekday. So we'll do five a week. I'll bang out most of them on Sunday and we could just sort of set them to, you know, pre-publish and we'll save like the top five, you know, sort of infamous umpires for the end of the, end of the series. So the last one we did was Joe West, of course. Yep. Um, but we're, I'm just going to try to get as much sort of common information as I can. You know, like, what are they notable for? How many no-hitters have they done? You know, we pulled up betting information, like what was their record against the spread. Um, and, you know, Tim Burke, uh, Bubble Prog on Twitter, you know, he pulled uh, strike three gift calls uh, for every single umpire. So every post, you know, ended with, you know, what does their strike three call look like in gift form? And so, and we, so we did this and it took, you know, I had a, a spreadsheet printed out and I had a schedule and I think it took about, you know, I don't know, five a week, you know, divided, you know, like 16 weeks or something like that. So it took about four months to do that. And, uh, man, I was really happy to have that done. <laughs> and it's probably, it's probably very outdated right now. I mean, but, uh, but I was happy with how that one came out because I felt like, you know, the, the traffic numbers are not great on those because, you know, really, like, who needs to know all that information about Dale Scott or anything like that? But, but it's a prestige you know, project they, there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to me, it was like service journalism, you know, of like a sort of a, a, a wacky bent. But, uh, you know, I mean, it, and, and just in hindsight, it's just cool to say that you did a 72-part series on umpires. But, um, in the moment, I know I was getting a lot out of it. And for like a good sort of like six to eight months trailing after that, I actually felt like, oh, like I'm sort of like I have an expert level of knowledge about this one thing. And that was kind of cool. And then more umpires come into the game and, you know, it's like, I don't know who these people are. I wish I could go back and do another, you know, a few entries into my series. But uh, maybe they will one day once a lot of these guys retire. You know. And that, that was actually, that was going to be my next question is how much of that you retained? Because I'm wondering, like, now if you're watching a game <laughs> and you see that, like, Field and Colbreth is the second base umpire, <laughs> are you looking around the room like, hey, who wants to hear a cool Field and Colbreth anecdote? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Field and Colbreth. I, like, I remember it was, like, the most hipstery umpire name of all of them. That was a fun <laughs> one. But, uh, no, if anything, I, I'm, I feel like I'm mostly expert on, like, 
who I can I can identify umpires based on their uh, strike three call. Um, oh, wow. you know, most famously, uh, Tom Hallian, who uh, you know is the guy who basically sort of contorts his body in sort of like a three sixty tornado, you know, uh, very violent kind of kind of move. Uh, like I can tell C.B. Buckner by his strike three call, but also by the fact that he's just awful at umpiring. Um, so, yeah, and I, and I would actually get, uh, uh, you know, because one of the sections uh, in each piece was like, uh, you know, it was basically sort of like just try to find like the most evil, vile comment that somebody had made about an umpire, like go search message boards or Twitter or something like that. And and over the, every once in a while, I would get a, a tweet or an email from someone like, thanking me like they were the person that made the vile comment about the umpire and it's like thanks you made me dead spin famous and i'm like great it's because of that really horrible thing you said about a real life person but okay you're welcome <laughs> so if hypothetically i had a list of umpires how well do you think you would do naming facts about them or what makes them notable <laughs> and i think you know i would do very going. poorly at this point you would i do would very do very poorly, poorly. Well, yeah, my, this, uh, uh... <laughs> this is not a game show, but uh, we're gonna we're gonna do oh, this anyway. Um, okay, we're we're gonna do this for one one quick segment here. I will. I have a few okay. umpires who I wrote down. We're gonna put you on the spot, and I did not worry that this was gonna happen. But we'll start. Okay, Tim, Tim McClelland. Okay, tall guy has a mustache. Okay, what is he notable for? Besides, he the was notable for. Uh, he was the guy who. Uh, kicked out Yuppie the mascot out of the game based on Tommy Lasorda's request. Okay. I actually, I, that's not, he might be, I believe you, you're the expert. I have, he okay. was the guy from the Pine Tar <laughs> game, which was the one thing that I had written down. Oh, yes, he was the Pine Tar uh, umpire. Pine Tar and okay. also Sammy Sosa's corked bat. Uh, same guy. There you go, yeah. See, that, that guy has seen some stuff. Yeah. Um, how about Kerwin Danley? Do you know anything about him? Oh, Kerwin Danley. Uh... No, I found I found him to be utterly forgettable. What was he? He wasn't the Jose Offerman at second base, was he? Uh, I don't think so. I have he's the guy. He was knocked out by a Brad Penny fastball that hit him, and uh, and he went down. Oh, had to be right. taken out of the game. Is um, he? Uh, now he's not the guy who had the blood dripping from his head. That was Brian Onora. He was, he got hit by a shard of a bat. Like oh yeah, that. I remember that. Um, I didn't remember yep. his name. Um, yep. All right. Okay. Very last one. Uh, Phillies fans are not happy with Scott Barry, and you wrote about this, and I'm curious if you remember why <laughs> Phillies fans don't like Scott Barry. Oh, gosh. I don't know, but I'm sure that you knew this immediately. So. <laughs> I, I did, yeah. He's the one. He, uh, <laughs> he taunted Ryan Howard and threw him out of the game, which was the reason Roy Oswalt had to play left field that one time. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah anyway... I mean... That there's, there's and some uh, things that everybody remembers. <laughs> that and much more available at deadspin.com for anyone who wants uh, yeah. to know about 72 different umpires. Um, and I don't know why you would, but glad to know it's there just in case. <laughs> yeah. Um, so last thing I want to talk to you about is that you have a new newsletter, uh, relatively new, <laughs> um, this year. Uh, the malcontent or malcontent. I don't know how, where the emphasis is uh, how to on the uh, pronunciation there, but it's your new newsletter. I'm curious how that came about, um, why you decided to do that, and and how it's going, and uh, and sort of you know how that how that came about. I guess. Well, I mean, I just uh, just one of those things where just kind of you know fussing around on Twitter most of the day, and you see a lot of interesting links come about, and 
And, you know, if I'm going to hold true to my uh, personal credo of never tweet, like, uh, got to come up with a strategy to help me tweet less, certainly. And I figured one of those is to uh, not necessarily sort of tweet all those links and recommendations out, but maybe sort of compile them all into, into a newsletter and, and sort of send that out. So, you know, it's one of those things that I I definitely wanted to do sort of as a daily thing, and I I actually done it daily for, for maybe a few weeks, and then... Uh, you know, the the uh, real life sort of caught up with me and, and the demands therein. And uh, it actually was a lot of work and uh, it ended up probably taking more time than I wanted. So I kind of uh, re- reconceived it and now I've turned it into more of a weekly newsletter. And, and perhaps I'll go back to it daily. Like I, there are some... Uh, there's some newsletters that I subscribe to from some from other journalists to actually do a daily uh, version, and uh, and it's very good. But uh, I also have uh, some weekly ones that I, I subscribe to, like uh, you know Don Van Natta has uh, a very good newsletter, the Sunday Long Read, and uh, you know so I, I I'm sort of uh, now in the in the point where you know especially being a freelancer now it's like time is money. So I can't necessarily, uh, you know, justify the expense of, you know, uh, essentially with the expenses of, of doing it on a daily basis. But, you know, I've always got the tiny letter tab open. And if I see something interesting, I might tweet it out and, or I might just th- sort of throw the link in there. And and also the thing about, you know, doing this as a weekly newsletter is that, you know, sort of selfishly gives me an outlet to sort of, you know, pin my own stuff, you know, at the end of the week uh, and to sort of, you know, keep people abreast of sort of what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And I imagine it's one of those things uh, probably where, you know, once I do get another sort of, you know, full-time or staff gig job one day, which you know, sort of is the ultimate goal, it will probably, you know, signal the end of the newsletter. So it would be kind of bittersweet to do that in the end because uh, probably if I had to choose again, I probably would not do it again, especially if I a full-time job. But, you know, I've got it and, and it's fun and, uh, you know, I've got you know a few hundred subscribers. So I feel like now I'm just sort of on the hook, you know, for people and, <laughs> And they want some links every week, and you know, just give them a little bit of weekend reading. So uh, it's one of those things. It's a, it's a nice little side distraction at this point. But then the the end of the newsletter eventually would mean you'd have to go back to tweeting, which I know you would hate. You know, I honestly, it would just uh, it would it would complicate things uh, in a lot of different ways, and I would be emotionally torn over having to do such a thing. But uh, you know, I'll sort of take it one step at a time at this point. Is that? It seems like you're already pretty emotionally torn. Is that a daily struggle for you, balancing your uh, hatred to tweet and your willingness to break your number one rule every day? I don't know if it's a hatred to tweet, but it's uh, it's it's an it's an eternal reluctance. And uh, and as I as I've said a couple times, every day is a failure, but uh, tomorrow is always a new opportunity to not tweet. <laughs> this is a little bit inside baseball for those people who uh, <laughs> who follow you on Twitter already. But this was great, and I want to thank you a lot. We're uh, wrapping up here, but I just want to say thanks a lot for coming on and, and taking the time to chat, especially for episode one. I know you had promised me ahead of time to try to be dreadfully boring so that my future guests would look good. Hopefully you did not succeed in that either. But thanks a lot to Eric Malinowski, and even though he – does not want to tweet, you can follow him on Twitter at Eric Mal, E-R-I-K-M-A-L on Twitter. There you can get info on his newsletter, which does have a lot of good stuff. Anything else to say? I don't know. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it, Eric. No, this was fun. Thanks for the opportunity. Appreciate it. I guess I can also plug myself before I get out of here. I am hoping that by the time this launches, it will be available in iTunes. So you should be able to go to the iTunes store and search for The Mitch Goldich Podcast. 
you'll be able to subscribe. You can also give me a rating and a review. Hopefully you'll be nice since this was just the first episode. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Mitch Goldich, G-O-L-D-I-C-H. I post there a ton, and I'll definitely be sharing all future episodes there. And you should also be able to find future episodes by going to my website, MitchGoldich.com. So once again, thanks to Eric, and thanks to all of you for listening, especially if you've made it this far. And I'll talk to all of you again soon.